If you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to Matthew uh, 26, verse 57 to 68. We'll read our scripture passage and then uh, we'll pray together. Matthew 26, verse 57 to 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last... Two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You've said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Let's go to God now in prayer. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would help us to understand. We ask that you would make us to believe. We pray that you would fill us with love. And Lord, we ask that you would compel us to speak of the Jesus that we read about in these pages. This we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Anytime you guest preach anywhere, it always takes some getting used to. You know, you're not in your home pulpit, so uh, bear with me for a minute. Neither, yeah, that's that's right, that's right. I was just getting used to the other one. Well, one of the uh, many accomplishments of my dear wife Suzanne is that she possesses a bachelor's degree in landscape architecture. And when we first uh, started dating, nearly uh, 17 years ago, uh, there were two things that I had to make sure that I. Uh, quickly got straight. The first was how to pronounce her last name properly, Kaniba, Kanibi. I mean, it's not intuitive like Smith. Uh, the second thing I wanted to make sure is that I wanted to know what exactly a landscape architect uh, did. Because I quickly learned from uh, Suzanne that landscape architecture is a, a bit of a misunderstood uh, vocation. Oftentimes when people uh, hear that uh, Suzanne is trained as a landscape architect, they assume that she went to school for gardening, and so they quickly uh, ask her for help as to where they might place their petunias or those uh, sorts of things. And I've, I've been told that is not what a landscape architect does. 
Uh, even though my wife is quite proficient at gardening, a landscape architect uh, is trained to design large-scale uh, gr green spaces, parks, uh, playgrounds, etc. But people hear the title, but they often understand what it means exactly. They've got misplaced assumptions that lead to misguided expectations. Maybe you've experienced uh, this before. Uh, Jesus experienced this. A recurring problem in the accounts of Jesus' life is that people frequently misunderstood what it meant that he was the Messiah or the Christ. The word is, is interchangeable. Uh, what exactly he would do in that office. Because when they heard the title Messiah, the people thought of pomp and power. Thought of a mighty conqueror, of slain enemies, of ticket-tape parades. As one scholar put it, the dominant popular hope was of a king like King David with a role of political liberation and conquest. But such visions of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah were mistaken, as we're going to see tonight. It's important for us to consider what it means that Jesus uh, uh, is the Christ, since there's much confusion as to what that means. What, who exactly is Jesus, and what did he come to do? There's just as much confusion today as there was in Jesus' own day. And such confusion is no small thing, because the Bible tells us that it's only in believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we might have life in his name. So quite plainly, getting clear about Jesus... Getting him right, so to speak, is a matter of great consequence. It's a matter of the difference between eternal life and eternal death. And Matthew, Jesus' disciple and biographer, wants to help us to see Jesus clearly. In this record of Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, he wants us to see that Jesus is the Messiah, but also he wants us to see that that messianic role is contrary to what we might expect or assume. Our passage tonight shows us that as Jesus declares himself to be the, the long-awaited rescuer and ruler of God's people, uh, he's not the rescuer and ruler that they came to expect. But it shows us that as the Messiah, his rescue and reign are accomplished in an unexpected way. So our text is going to show us that Jesus is the long-awaited ruler and rescuer of God's people who first suffers in order to save we're going to see this by looking at first the conspiracy against the king, then the identity of the king, and then thirdly, the surprising nature of his kingship. So the gospel uh, writer uh, Matthew has a purpose for sharing his eyewitness testimony concerning Jesus. His overarching concern is that his readers then and now would see that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus didn't just spring onto the scene out of nowhere, Matthew is at great pains to tell us. He came as the fulfillment of centuries worth of prophecies recorded in the scriptures. Prophecies that spoke of a coming king. A rescuer and ruler who would save God's people from their sins and set the world right again. And because Matthew wants us to see this point precisely, that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ, he often points out how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So if you've ever read through Matthew's Gospel, you'll likely have noticed that frequently we see things like, such and such took place in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In fact, in, in the section uh, immediately before our text tonight, we read of two such fulfillments. And Jesus had just finished uh, up celebrating the Passover 
uh, with his uh, followers. And then he had gone into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to pray about his impending death. And it's in the garden, under the cover of darkness, that Jesus' friend Judas betrays him. He leads an uh, an army, an armed mob to arrest Jesus and turn him over to the religious leaders who sought to kill him. And what's important for our purposes here this evening is to note that Jesus surrendered himself to the mob willingly. You might remember when Simon Peter, uh, 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 the mob's there, Simon Peter uh, takes a swing at the mob with uh, with his sword, cutting off a, a dude's ear, and Jesus admonishes Peter. He says, Peter, don't you realize that if I asked in an instant, my father would send 70,000 angels to vapor, vaporize these guys. But I must go so that the scripture will be fulfilled. And with that, His closest friends fled into the night and Jesus was led off to Caiaphas' house. And that's where we see him this evening. Jesus doesn't run. He doesn't fight. He doesn't take advantage of any of his divine privileges. Instead, he's dragged before Caiaphas as a prisoner to be tried. Outside in the outer courts of Caiaphas' home, the servants and armed guards are gathered by the fire to warm themselves. Peter has slipped in uh, with the crowd. And Matthew records rather, rather fatalistically that Peter had come to see the end. Inside, Jesus was examined by Caiaphas and a group of other religious leaders. Now, commentators have written uh, various things on the legality of Jesus' appearance before Caiaphas. Was it an official trial? Uh, how irregular uh, was it? These aren't details that we're going to get into tonight because we really only need to know this. The outcome of the trial was clear. It was never in doubt. If you know anything about the uh, gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you know that the scribes and Pharisees were always grumbling about Jesus. They were out to get him. And by this point, they had long since been fed up with Jesus And they had plotted, as Matthew tells us at the beginning of of the chapter, how they could arrest Jesus and put him to death. So though the verdict is certain, the religious leaders, they go out and they're they're seeking to uh, obtain testimony that will give an air of legitimacy to their plot. Now, if the scribes and Pharisees were looking uh, for dirt on you you or I, no doubt they would be able to find some if they digged hard enough. But it's not quite so easy when you're looking for dirt on the only sinless person who has ever walked the face of the earth. And so you sense some, uh, uh, some cheekiness in Matthew's record here because he talks about how many false witnesses came forward at the prompting of the leaders and none could bring a credible charge. But then at long last, Matthew says, two witnesses did come forward. And though what they reported wasn't strictly accurate, it was close enough for the purposes of Caiaphas and his cronies. These two witnesses claimed that Jesus said he was able to destroy the temple of God in Jerusalem and to rebuild it in three days. Now you have to understand that to speak against the temple was a big deal in in any uh, uh, culture in the ancient Near East in those days, but particularly in uh, Jerusalem or among the Jews. This was the place that God dwelled. And so it was uh, to speak against the temple was, in some sense, uh, understood to, sp- uh, to speak against God. But John's gospel records what Jesus actually said. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
But John goes on to say that Jesus was not speaking about the physical temple, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. He was, he was prophesying his death and subsequent resurrection. But Caiaphas saw this. This was the opportunity that he needed. And he gets up and he begins to uh, press Jesus for a response. So maybe uh, if you've seen the movie, you can think of the uh, famous scene from the movie uh, A Few Good Men. Right? Tom Cruise's character, he's a lawyer, and he's going after uh, uh, the, the character Colonel uh, Jessup. And, and in an act of desperation, he begins to go after the witness. Right? He's like, did you order the code red? Right? You might remember that. He's yelling in, in Jessup's face. He's goading him, hoping that he will uh, 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 produce a response, exposing the colonel's guilt. Right? What do you want? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Only Jesus is innocent, and he remains silent. Even as men falsely accuse him and revile him, he did not speak. This is just as Isaiah prophesied some 700 years beforehand, right? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Incidentally, just notice, right, the holy self-control of our Savior. Have you ever had uh, people who have falsely accused you of things or have maligned uh, your character? Right? If you, that you've ever had that, you know it's not a pleasant experience. I can recall an instance in my own life. I was indignant at the injustice, right? I was mad. This wasn't right. I was prepared to go to battle, lay out the facts, obliterate the arguments that were being made against me. It just wasn't true. Not Jesus. Right? Not here. It recalls what Peter wrote many years later, perhaps with this exact scene in mind. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus here, he's enduring the reviling of false judgments of men because he rested in the true judgment of God. And this, Peter says later on, is what we're called to since Christ has suffered for us and left us an example. Now, the Bible doesn't say it's, it's always, or, uh, always wrong to defend yourself. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. But I think it's far too quickly our response, or at least it is mine. For our Savior sets an example for us here in these pages, of enduring suffering patiently and without responding in turn. But this brings us to the question of the identity of the the king. Eventually, Caiaphas presses Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. In other words, I'm placing you under oath. If you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, say so. Being placed under a legal oath, Jesus is required to to produce an answer. And so Jesus responds, you have said so. Now this is rather indirect, but in the context of Jesus' remarks, it's clear that he's agreeing with Caiaphas' question. He's saying that he is the Christ. And if there's any question, you can go to Mark's account of this same story uh, of the trial. And, And Mark tells us that Jesus also gave a more definitive response saying, I am. But Jesus here is quick to clarify what he means. This is in verse 64. Because as I've already noted, the term Christ was susceptible to being misunderstood or hijacked for uh, political purposes. 
The expectation of the Jews in that day was that the Messiah would come and bring uh, political liberation from the Roman occupiers through military victory. They were expecting that God would send a king who would establish an earthly throne and an earthly kingdom through earthly means, producing earthly glory. And for this reason, Jesus is always quite selective about when he refers to himself as the Christ. So when, for example, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Peter correctly sees Jesus as who he is. He he identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus say? He goes on to tell his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus was speaking of himself in the Gospels. He far more often preferred to use another title from the Old Testament. The Son of Man. And he uses this description again here in verse 64. Now when he uses this term, Jesus is not using it to identify himself uh, or identify his human nature in contrast uh, to his uh, divine nature, but rather he uses the Son of Man term as a messianic identification. He uses the title not to say something about what he is, but something about who he is, something about his authority and identity. Now, the Son of Man was still a messianic title, but it allowed Jesus to say something about who he was with a title that wasn't encumbered by the, the same baggage of bad assumptions. This way, Jesus could freely explain without the the uh, mis-expectations, who he was and what he would do. So you might know that the Son of Man, uh, as a title, was taken from the Old Testament book of Daniel, uh, specifically chapter 7. There, Daniel receives a vision from uh, God of a Messiah figure who's identified as one who's like a Son of Man. And this Son of Man, uh, one like a Son of Man, comes in Daniel's vision uh, with the clouds of heaven, and he's presented before the throne of God, the Ancient of Days, and he's given dominion over an eternal kingdom. Now, according to the Old Testament, the Son of Man was a figure who had divine authority and who received universal supremacy. So as the one who received dominion from the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man sits in a seat of rule, and he sits to judge the enemies of God. And so when Jesus here uses his favorite title, he speaks of the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. He is making a bold claim. He's saying that he is far more than the political and military Christ that so many of them were looking for. Jesus is saying that one day they will see that he exercises a heavenly, a divine authority by which he would rule and reign over an eternal and universal kingdom. So with these words, he says, I am not the Messiah you expect, but I am the Messiah. And it's clear from the reaction of the high priest as as he tears his robes in, in anger and from the charge of blasphemy, that they understood this is exactly what Jesus intended to say. Jesus was claiming divine authority. And so we need to stop here for a minute to consider Jesus' claim. Because the trial of Jesus forces us to make an important decision. Indeed, I think that there are are few more important decisions that, that we'll ever make than this one. And the question is this, is Jesus who he says he is? Now, very few people argue about the historical existence of Jesus. It's a a fact of history generally acknowledged even by the most ardent opponents of Christianity that Jesus existed. 
But the question that we must answer is this. Can Jesus be trusted? Can Jesus be trusted when he says that he is the promised Christ, the long-awaited rescuer and ruler of God's people? Now, but as we answer that question, here's what you can't do. You can't avoid Jesus' claim. You can't treat Jesus like some uh, crazy uncle or contemporary uh, political figure where you say, oh, well, uh, sure, he says some crazy things sometimes, but he's really quite nice. No, we can't say that. Jesus was not just some uh, nice or good teacher, some moral example, but we need to deal with Jesus on his own terms. We need to ask, is he who he says he is? Does he sit at the Father's right hand, sharing his authority? Does he rule over a kingdom that will have no end? Is he the long-awaited Messiah who will usher in an eternal kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace? Jesus thinks he is. Do you? This is the famous argument, of course, of C.S. Lewis. Jesus makes such stupendous claims about himself that either he is a horrific liar, he is a raving lunatic, or he is exactly who he says he is. The Lord. And if he's the Lord, he must be obeyed. And if he must be obeyed, then he must be trusted, for he tells us, believe in him whom God has sent. Now, without uh, rehashing the politics of uh, COVID, I wouldn't dare to do that. Uh, I want to say that one of the harder things uh, about uh, COVID and and all the things related to that for church leaders was that you couldn't avoid uh, the questions, right? They required an answer. You might not have always gotten the right answer, but you had to come to a decision, right? Either you're going to obey lockdowns or you weren't. Either you're going to have masking or you weren't. There was no sort of third way on some of these decisions, and you couldn't delay You had to choose. Well, that's how it is with this question. Jesus has said he is the promised rescuer and ruler, the Christ. Either you'll take him at his word and submit to him, or you'll not. But there's no delaying the decision. The Jewish leaders, of course, have made their decision as to who Jesus is. In one sense, I think it's a pretty surprising one. Surprising uh, in this sense. I wonder if you've ever waited for something for a really long time. I'm waiting for a few things right now. As Jonathan said, we're waiting for our fourth child to arrive. I'm waiting for the opening day of the baseball season, which is next Thursday. Waiting for my roses to arrive in the mail, which I ordered last fall. I am not always good at waiting. Uh, While my wife and I were dating, uh, she spent five months in Europe while I uh, trudged along in a miserable existence in my second year of university. Uh, I literally was counting down the days uh, for Suzanne to return. Now, how do you think I felt when uh, I saw Suzanne coming out of the the gate of the airport? What do you think I did? I I was ecstatic. She was back. I maybe even kissed her. Right? There's nothing surprising, though, about what I did. That's exactly what you would expect someone to do uh, who is in my shoes. Now, what would be more surprising is if Suzanne showed up, I looked at her, took her luggage, dumped it on the floor, and then slapped her in the face. Right? I would never do that. Right? It was absolutely wrong. Right? But if you did, you'd think, I was out of my mind. Right? Looney Tunes. 
under any circumstances, not only would you say what I did was inexcusably wrong, but particularly so when this is the one whom I had claimed I was waiting for for so long. But isn't that exactly what we see in our passage? For over a thousand years, the Jewish people had been looking forward to the promised Messiah, the one who would redeem them from sin, rescue them from their enemies, uh, rule over them in righteousness and peace. And at last, here he is in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, the hope of Israel. And what do they do? Not bend the knee in submission, not fall down or embrace him in worship, but they condemn him. They strike him. They spit on him. Mark's account uh, account tells us that they covered his face as they struck him and taught him, saying, prophesy, tell us who hit you, Christ. It almost defies the imagination. In fact, it's such a disgraceful reception that we're left to ask, why should it even happen at all? If Jesus is the Christ, why should he subject himself to this kangaroo court? Why did he not come in riding in on the clouds with his angels to bring about his kingdom that way? Theologians will oftentimes speak of Christ's humiliation and Christ's exaltation, as our reading from the larger catechism did this evening. Christ's humiliation refers to his descent, his humbling of himself to the point of death. His exaltation refers to his, his resurrection, his ascension, his being seated at the Father's right hand and his coming again uh, to judge the world. If Jesus was the Christ, why did he endure the shocking maltreatment that belonged to his humiliation at all? Why not come straight away in exalted glory, which he refers to in his answer to Caiaphas? This again is where our assumptions about the Messiah or the Christ need to be clarified and corrected. Jesus' kingdom is brought about not by the sword, but by the cross. The way up to his throne is by going down to the grave. But why? Why was it this way? I suppose it wasn't strictly necessary for it to be this way, but keep in mind, part of the Son of Man's job was to exercise the authority of divine judgment. As the divine king, the son of man comes to bring judgment against all those who are in opposition to God. Kingdoms and kings and, and, and anyone who has set themselves up against God. Installed on the judgment seat of heaven, the son of man exercises his, his authority by commending the righteous and condemning sinners. The only problem is that we're all sinners. Every single one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as the familiar scripture passage says. By nature, we belong to a kingdom that is opposed to God and opposed to his Christ. We'd be fine with God telling us what to do just so long as he only tells us the things that we want to do. We resist and resent his authority. We rebel against it. And so it's perhaps conceivable that the Son of Man could have foregone this humiliating scene perhaps conceivable that he could come with his angels in the fullness of his glory and of his exalted rule. Perhaps he could have come to issue judgment and not to endure it, to crush his enemies and not be crushed by them. But friend, if he had come like that, it would not have been good news. It would have been dismal, terrifying news. 
For if he had only come in the might of his exaltation uh, that his office brought, it would bring the judgment that you and I, beloved, surely deserve. We'd be in the crosshairs of divine judgment, and God does not miss. For every lie, every selfish act, every angry word, impure thought, ungrateful response, you and I would stand in the judgment, guilty of sin, to receive sin's just punishment, eternal death. But that's not what happened. Jesus, the Messiah, came, first of all, not as the mighty judge, but as the suffering servant. His kingdom was entered into not by blows given, but by blows received. The exaltation of Christ without the humiliation of Christ, that would mean only judgment. Only exaltation through humiliation would mean salvation for us. Now don't be mistaken, the Son of Man will still come in judgment. Jesus says in John 5, and the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man. And elsewhere, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. But as our text shows us, He does not come first in judgment. First He came. He came willingly to endure the lowly condition that we see in this text. Hit, spat upon, mocked. To endure that for your sake and mine, to save sinners. He came to bear our sins, to take our punishment. He stood in our place, his innocent ears, hearing the words of uh, condemnation that we deserved so that we could hear words of divine acceptance. The result is that the Son of Man's coming in glory, as he certainly shall, to exercise his judgment will not be a dreadful day for his saints, but a glorious one. Because there will stand the penalty for our sins, paid, our guilt removed, His righteousness ours, all because Jesus was a Christ, a ruler and a rescuer who chose to come in humility before He came in glory. So how should we respond to this? Well, just two very brief points of application. Believe the King, love the King. First, believe the King. Our text tells us to take Jesus at his word. Believe Jesus is who he says he is. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the promised rescuer and ruler through whom God will reconcile the world. In prayer, uh, by yourself or with someone else, just say, Jesus, I believe you. I take you at your word. I believe you, you are who you say you are. So believe the king. Secondly, love the king. See his great love for you. Enduring shameful derision, disdain, abuse for a sinner such as yourself? Does that not move our heart toward him? Do we not uh, read, as we read this passage as children of God, do we not say, my Jesus, you willingly endured this for me. Here was a Messiah who came not just in glory, but who came first in humility. So that his judgment would not be bad news for us. But good news as we stand in him and we rejoice in the day of his coming. So love the king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's not given to us to confess um, that Jesus is the Christ, not just with our, our lips, but with our hearts. Accept 
that you grant us to see him as such. Lord, you must give us sight by your spirit to see and to confess Jesus as the promised rescuer and ruler. And so, Lord, this is what we pray. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus as he truly is, to believe him, to see him as the Christ who would endure the mocking, the scorn for our poor sake. Fill our hearts with the love that such a scene requires, deserves. Move us in love toward Jesus afresh tonight, Lord, we pray. In his name, amen.